Let's pray. Lord, a few things we want to bring before you this morning before we pray about our particular next few minutes. I want to pray for another church in our community, for First Baptist Church Greenville, with a new pastor, newly called Pastor Roy Youngblood. Lord, we want to pray for um, the church as a whole, just pray for a a time of uh, real health and growth and fellowship and community. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will use Roy um, to be a herald of truth and uh, a gentle, attentive leader for really a sweet season in the life of First Baptist Church. Lord, we pray for the movement of the kingdom in and through this sister church in our community. Thankful for a pastor being called now, and Lord, we pray that you will use him in a way that will uh, bring you glory. I, I pray for Roy, too, uh, not knowing Roy and not having met him yet. I don't know if he has wife and family, but if he does, Lord, I want, we want to lift them up as well and pray that they are uh, connecting to a community and connecting to people, that they're getting to know people here, here in our area and um, that you will use um, this family to be a sweet ministry to this uh, church that is dear to us. We're thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning. Lord, also this morning we want to pray for Robin Ashmore and her family as they uh, are dealing with the loss of her dad. And I just want to pray for your glory through the loss. Lord, we, we know and believe that the wise pay heed to death so we pray for those in Robin's family that, um, that you will use this as a time for them to grow more fervent in worship and grow more faithful in their walk with you, that you will use this law somehow for your glory. We pray for Robin too and her, her sisters and her mother as they grieve in different ways. Lord, we pray that they reach out and seek you, reach out to you and seek you. Or lastly, this morning, before we pray about our next few minutes, I want to pray for Kelly Aiken. Thankful for the opportunity to lift up one of our own uh, who's going to be running for local office uh, as a judge, Lord. We are uh, thankful for these um, public servants, uh, the difficult roles that they play in our community. And Lord, we, uh, we want to be faithful in praying for them as you've told us to do. Uh, we pray for faithfulness. We pray for Honesty, we pray for um, committed, uh, selfless service so the kingdom can be advanced in our context, Lord, that we can worship peacefully. Uh, We pray for Kelly as she's running for office and for Joey and the family that you will guard them from some of the things that we don't even know would be involved in that process, but that they would uh, really, it would really be a time of worship for them as they seek your face and your guidance in running for local office. Lord, in regards to these next few minutes, I am um, I'm thankful for these past few weeks that you've given me to consider this message this morning. I'm um, thankful for time away with my wife, enjoying your creation, um, enjoying you in creation, uh, particularly. I'm thankful for how these truths have ministered to me. And I'm uh, privileged and grateful for the chance to share these with this people this morning. We give it to you this morning as an offering. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to have you turn to different places this morning. You know, some Sundays we have kind of a home base and we stay there. And then other Sundays we move around a little bit. And this is going to be one of those moving around Sundays. I'm only going to have you turn places that, uh, for a purpose. So the first place I'd like for you to turn is Isaiah 24. As you're turning there, I'll share a little bit of context with you for this context regarding what we're about to do, why we're about to do this. Uh, it's a sermon having to, deal, having to do with dealing with creation and Christ and the connection between what God has done for us and is doing for us in Christ and the part that creation plays in this whole thing. Um, Since preaching through the first few chapters in Isaiah a couple of months ago, I've had this nagging, nagging thing and this nagging feeling having to do with creation. 
There's this strange thread that runs through Isaiah that at least before I've done some study was strange, and now it's making a lot of sense. In Isaiah chapter 1, you may remember one of our first sermons. It was actually the second sermon on Isaiah. We considered sort of a courtroom environment where God sits on the bench and the nation of Israel, the children of Israel specifically, if we're going to use that language, are sitting there in the courtroom wearing orange And the first witnesses that are called in the courtroom are these witnesses. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is the second verse in the book of Isaiah, right after Isaiah identifies himself as the author. I mean, it's right out of the gun, right out of the chute we're dealing with, at least meeting heaven and earth. And then if you flip over to the end of the book, don't flip there because I want you in Isaiah 24. But if you move over toward the end of the book, in the next to last chapter, it's even mentioned in the last chapter, we hear or we meet heaven and earth again. It says in chapter 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. This thread that runs throughout the book of Isaiah, having to do with earth and creation. It's interesting in chapter 24, you see the most um, um, heartbreaking, in some ways, picture of how the earth is connected to our judgment, which is what 24 has to do with. Listen to this passage in chapter 24. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with the master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word." The earth mourns. The earth mourns and the earth withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a cursed curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. In studying Isaiah and preparing to preach Isaiah a few months ago, for some time I've been studying it, but preaching it a couple of months ago, this thread of creation came, came up, and, and it came up often enough where I'm saying, this thing sounds really familiar to me. The book of Isaiah is a story of a people. It's a little micro version, or we could say macro version, a longer version of another story that we find somewhere else in Genesis chapter 3. Turn there. Genesis chapter 3. As you're turning there, I'll kind of acquaint you with where we're going, at least my thought process here. As I'm studying Isaiah, it just sounds strangely familiar to me, where God plants a people in a beautiful context. In many ways, they're reborn, excuse me, reborn through the watery ordeal of crossing the Red Sea and crossing the Jordan, and they go into this promised land as a newly created people. It's like they're a people version of Adam and Eve, and they're placed in this beautiful garden with Um, A land flowing with milk and honey, a really blessed land, but they're not good stewards with that land, and they sin against their creator, and then they experience eviction from the garden through the Babylonian exile. I'm reading Isaiah, and I'm going, man, this just sounds strangely familiar. It sounds like the garden and the fall of man in macro. There's something that's used in our Bible. It's a term. It's just a parking place I want to give you for a new thought. That's what a new term is. It's the word recapitulation. It's a story that's told over and over and over again. And this story of the fall of man and the goodness of God and the salvation that he works out is told over and over throughout our Bible. 
It's a recapitulation in Isaiah of what happened in the garden. And as in Isaiah, it's, so, it's true in Genesis chapter 3 that the earth and creation is clearly connected to the whole story. Let's look at it in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. You know what's happened, likely. I hope you know. If you don't know, I encourage you to read chapter 3. It is a story of the fall of man and the sin of man, how sin enters, enters the world through Eve and then Adam. And then the consequences begin in um, verse 13, where um, God meets out the judgment on the serpent, on the woman, and then on Adam. And in verse 17, I want us to look at the judgment that's passed to Adam. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam's name, in fact, is taken from one of the Hebrew words for earth that means dirt is Adamo. That's how closely connected Adam and Adamo, earth, are in this passage. As you have sinned, now the earth, the earth will be cursed because of your sin. Thorns and thistles, mosquitoes and flies, and every other nagging thing that you can ever think of are a consequence of what Adam and Eve did. The earth paid the price for it, for man's sin. The earth was cursed because of man's sin. What's really heartbreaking about this is just in the previous chapters, God has already said in the creation of this amazing earth, that it was very good. But our sin is that contaminating. Our sin is that terrible that it takes something that's very good and now results in a curse. The earth, I want you to understand as a, as a foundational thought for how we're going to spend these next few minutes, the earth is caught up in this mess with mankind. The earth is organically, and I mean that literally, connected to our mess. And if so, if you believe that with me, that the earth is connected to our mess, then the earth is also going to be connected to our salvation and our redemption. Something beautiful for the earth is in store because something beautiful is happening to us. Our salvation means salvation for this earth. Now this thought led me on a little journey a journey of looking for cameo visits or cameo appearances of, of creation and earth in the ministry of Christ. If the earth is connected to the fall of man, to the first Adam, you see the earth and the curse in the first Adam, then certainly it's got to show up in the work of the second and better Adam. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at just three Pictures in four glimpses of how the earth makes a cameo appearance in the redemption work of Christ. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This first one has to do with creation's cameo appearance in the birth of Christ. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And they sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them, until it, excuse me, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his, Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, this first little cameo appearance has to do with an appointed and traveling star. Now, if you know anything about the stars, you know that they don't work this way. Stars actually revolve, or they don't revolve at all. We're revolving, and it gives the appearance that the night sky, in the night sky, that these stars are moving away, or in an in a opposite direction of the, the, uh, how the earth is moving. So the night sky changes. I had a hard lesson in this years ago in Quantico, Virginia. I was leading a platoon of Marines through um, the woods in the middle, of the middle of the night in Quantico, Virginia. We had 15 clicks, is what we called them, kilometers to move in the middle of the night. I mean, it's dark. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. And I was the guy that had the responsibility of navigating for us as we moved through the woods around Quantico. And if, if you know anything about land navigation, you know that you have something called a lensatic compass. The lensatic compass that we used has little tritium tubes in it, so you could read it at night. You could flip the thing open and see where you're going. Now, one thing you don't want to do if you're navigating and you're leading a bunch of Marines through the woods together in the middle of the night is to have to fiddle with your compass all the time. A good navigator um, can navigate without the unit even having to stop. Okay, So my goal was to not let us stop at all. We had 15 kilometers to move, which would take hours to move over the course of the night. So I set a, an azimuth with my lensatic compass, and I saw a star that was especially bright that was right on course with where I wanted to go. So we charted off 15 kilometers, and every now and again, I would look up for that star, and yeah, make sure we're tracking with that star. Well, 15 clicks later, I found out that we were about five clicks off where we were supposed to be. Because the star moved. I didn't pick the north star, which would have, been, would have appeared to be static, although it's not static. It's the only star in the sky that's right in line with the axis of rotation of the earth, which is why it looks static. I picked a star, unfortunately, that moved while we moved through the woods around Quantico. But the thing you need to know about stars is that they don't park. And one thing we can know is that the wise men were not following the north star because it says they came from the east. That means they're going west. They wouldn't have been following the north star. But God appoints a created star and ordains a star to do something glorious in regards to the birth of his own son. Stars don't come to rest, yet this one did because the Creator appointed it to. It had an important role that night. The God that hung the stars and lit them and named them and appointed their courses, appointed this one not only to stand over Bethlehem, but on the night to lead them from the short trip from Bethlehem, excuse me, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to even identify the particular house that Jesus was in. That's a significant creation cameo from a specially ordained star. Here's the second little cameo appearance. Turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. The first cameo has to do with the sky. This next cameo is going to have to do with water. Water is one of the most elemental things that we can possibly think of. I mean, it is it is part of our human existence. It is 60% of our human body is made up of water. Our earth is covered with 71% of the, the earth is covered with water. It is an important element. If we're going to talk about creation and we don't talk about water, then we're missing something. So we talked about the sky. Let's consider this next little cameo appearance and see what happens with water. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 
This is the first miracle shared in the book of John and may be the first recorded miracle of Christ's ministry. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, you need to know this would be a tragedy at a wine in that, or excuse me, at a, a wedding in that day. For the wine to run out, you could actually have charges pressed against you as the, the host if you ran out of wine. And I'm not joking. That's a serious matter. So they ran out of wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I don't know how Jesus and his mother got along. It just sounds odd, but I trust that there's some cultural things there I may not understand. He says, my hour has not come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. I guess apparently mom knew that Jesus was going to take some action. So there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, and each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These are huge jars. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with H2O, just regular, no-nonsense water. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine when they don't know what they're drinking. But you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the second cameo appearance of some creation thing that I'm going to deal with, at least this morning, dealing with water. His first recorded miracle that we know of was changing H2O to ethanol, which is CH3, CH2OH, and a bunch of other stuff that makes wine really tasty and not just pure ethanol. He took H2O and he turned it into something amazing. The molecules and the atoms obeyed their creator like little soldiers falling into formation because that's what he does when he shows up. He takes something that's ordinary and plain and earthy and he turns it into something glorious like, where did this wine come from? This is amazing. It's almost as if these little H2O molecules couldn't wait to be ordered into something really special when their creator said to fall in. Here's the second one dealing with water. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. I like to hear some pages turning. I don't do this every week, but let's just turn some pages. Even if you're not accustomed, even if you're a listener, still turn the pages. And go there. You'd be glad you did. Mark chapter 4. I think of the cameo appearances, this is one of my favorites. On that day when evening had come, this is in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. He's speaking of a body of water. He's speaking of the Sea of Galilee, which is a very shallow little sea that's surrounded by mountains or large hills and that wind would often whip down over these hills into the Sea of Galilee and create these torrential, crazy storms. So that's what's about to unfold here. Listen, let's go across the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, some of these disciples, you know, were fishermen okay, who'd spent a lot of time in boats. Let's see how they respond. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, when a fisherman is starting, is starting to get really nervous in a boat, I'm going to believe that that thing must have been really bad. It's like when a stewardess is on a plane and she starts scrambling and starts to buckle in. When the stewardess buckles in, then I'm holding on and I'm praying fervently. So the fishermen are nervous. And he awoke, though, they said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, to H2O, peace, be 
still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The Sea of Galilee, this place where storms could just whip up in a moment is the place where he's going to reveal his glory and his sovereignty over even water molecules. Here he says with three words, peace be still and water molecules bow to his very word. He does hear what he did in creation where he speaks into chaos and he brings order, glass to this Sea of Galilee. This cursed and chaotic earth, it seems, can't wait to be ordered peaceful by its creator and its redeemer. What I enjoy here in this beautiful picture of him speaking into this stormy sea and bringing peace and calm is that deliverance for the disciples meant peace and calm in sort of a recreated earth and a recreated See, here's the third picture that I want to look at, having to do, in this case, with the earth. Turn to Matthew chapter 27. As you're turning there, I'll share with you, this goes toward the end of his ministry. The sky and the star dealt with his birth. These were just a couple of little snapshots of these cameo appearances dealing with water. There are plenty of other cameo appearances uh, dealing with creation in his ministry. Plenty of other times dealing with the Sea of Galilee where he calmed the storm. One occasion where he actually walked on the sea and defied all laws of physics and gravity. Where H2O actually somehow held his body weight up. There, there are little stories that one like ha- that has to deal with a coin-eating fish. Great story. There's a story that deals with a cursed fig tree. These cameo appearances in creation are not uncommon where he multiplies loaves and fishes and shows that he even owns math. Beautiful pictures of creation. But this one has to do, this next one has to do with his cross and his resurrection. In Matthew chapter 27. And I'm going to read a little larger section here just because... As God's people gather, I can't imagine why we wouldn't read this. When they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land till the ninth hour. From noon to about three in the afternoon, there's darkness, little creation Mini cameo there. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth, this thing that he spoke into existence, that he created, 
according to Hebrews chapter 1. The Father spoke and the Son went into action creating this thing. This earth shook and the rocks were split and tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what had taken place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, This was the Son of God. More cameo appearances in this case having to deal with a darkened sky and an earthquake that splits rocks. Christy and I recently had a chance to go to New Zealand. Put that that rock split picture up there. We had a chance to go to New Zealand just a couple weeks ago, in fact, and it was our 20th anniversary celebration, and we wanted to go to New Zealand. We've always wanted to. And one of the things, this is just one among many things that we saw, was this big boulder. This guy wasn't in there. I didn't take it. I found that picture online. <laughs> It'd be a tough job, you know, just hang out there all the time. But he wasn't in there. That must have been somebody else. But there, was, there wasn't anybody in there. But that gives you a scope of the scale of this rock. And the shape, the crack, is exactly like the other. I mean, this was a mate. This was like one big gumball that somehow split and, you know, of course, the, the description there was the glaciers 8 billion years ago moved across the earth, and, and as the rock cooled, it split, and, you know, that's the explanation. But my thought was that must have happened, or could have happened at least, on the day that Jesus was crucified. Who knows? It's a cool thought, though. I wouldn't be surprised if over there in New Zealand, this rock just said, oh, man, I'm done. I'm done. All hope is gone because our creator has been killed. So we're going to just have this big convulsing earthquake, and we're just going to split open. The earth, apparently, we get some sense. You can turn that off now. At least in his death at the earth, in some ways, convulsing with the notion of a dead Savior. It's reeling with the news of a dead hope. But then three days later, Matthew chapter 28, on the next chapter, It says in verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there's a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So this is the anti-earthquake. Here's the first one where they got the bad news. And here's the earthquake where they're coughing forth the Savior and they're celebrating the resurrection. I can't imagine, too, now we don't have the details here, that there weren't olive trees appointed all over this this tomb where he's risen that were full of birds singing new songs. I can't imagine that there weren't dewdrops ordained to soften his steps as he stepped forth from this tomb. What a beautiful morning that must have been. But you see the cameos of the earth at work. An earthquake at his death and rocks splitting open and another earthquake at his resurrection. As I'm looking at just some of these cameos of Jesus' ministry and and seeing where the earth somehow is connected to his work and connected to the storyline, I'm realizing, man, I think the earth has always been part of this story. The earth was connected to the fall and the earth is connected to the promise that was made. Think about the nation of Israel. The promise for them is you're going to be as numerous as the stars and the sand on the seashore. And oh, also, you're going to occupy terra forma. You're going to occupy some Adamo. You're going to live and own some earth. You're going to exercise dominion over this thing. This land flowing with milk and honey was part of the good news for them. The redemption of the earth should be part of the good news for us. We're the ones that fouled it up. But he's going to make it right for us, and he makes it right for the earth as well. The new heavens and a new earth. I have three thoughts for you. Just three thoughts having to do with what does this have to do with our view of worship? How do we respond to this? What do we do with this? Here's the first of three. I believe the most spoiled people in the world are people that have no view of what's going on around them. You know the kid in Walmart. He may have been your kid. He might be you. (laughs) 
You know that person, that adult too, that everything revolves around them. Every conversation, every story, they really have no view of anyone else. You know the flip side, other people that are humble and gentle and attentive and consider others and think about all these other moving parts. I believe that knowing that God, first of all, knowing that we are organically connected to the earth in both the fall and the solution And knowing that God is redeeming creation along with us should make for a humble people who don't see everything revolving around us. Should make for a people that are attentive and aware of many moving parts in God's story. I believe that will help us better see and have some better perspective how we fit into the story. It might change how you even read some scripture. Listen to this passage that I've read a million times, but I'm reading it with a new set of eyes as I've considered the role that creation has in the redemption story. At the, in the book of Mark, at the end, Jesus says to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. There's almost a sense, go out there and preach to the trees, for they're going to celebrate with you the good news that I bring. I think we together, God's people, first of all, should know that this is a big story and it's more than just about you getting saved. It's about all creation being redeemed. It's a story of God working in creation to save this thing. He has a particular work in a people and he's redeeming a remnant and he's sending Christ to answer a thousands-year-old problem of a cursed earth and a fallen man. Man, first of all, we should read and understand bigger than just ourselves when it comes to the gospel and the good news. Here's the second thing. Turn to Psalm 96. I have two more passages for you to look at. Psalm 96 is the first of those two. Psalm 96. I told you, I actually had a little prep for Sunday, and in the email said Psalm 69. You could totally read that, but it's a vindication psalm. It really has nothing to do with where I'm going this morning. So if you read that, man, you probably were wondering, what in the world? This is a treasured psalm for me. I think the first time that I ever really connected to it, I was visiting Jeff and Pam in Germany and was sitting outside their apartment building just reading and read Psalm 96 and just began to treasure this psalm. As I read it, I want you to look for the subject and the verbs. I'm going to help you identify them as we go. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing would be a verb, just kind of get you warmed up, get you kind of acquainted, reacquainted with English. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord more verbs. Bless his name. Tell, here's another verb. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. That's a good verb. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Here's another good verb. Ascribe to the Lord. Give credit to the Lord. Now here's the subject. Oh, families of the peoples. You got plans for Christmas? You got plans that you're hoping for as family and gathering with other family members? I hope singing, telling, declaring, and ascribing are part of those plans because that's what the families of God's people are supposed to be up to. Those are supposed to be our verbs. Ascribe to the Lord. Give credit to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. There's another good one. Bring and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him. Now here's the other subject of the psalm. All the earth. Tremble before him, all the earth. Here's the first subject, the families of God's people. And here's the second subject, all the earth. 
Tremble before him, all the earth. Let's continue. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That's a good verb. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, here's what I'm going to say from this psalm that I think is clearly communicated. If you look at the subject and the verb, the subject is the families are singing, telling, declaring, ascribing, worshiping. The earth is trembling. If those things are happening, then these next things happen. Let the earth be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult. That word means extreme happiness. And everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Have you ever enjoyed a grove, a stand of aspens? Have you ever heard aspens sing? Have you ever thought that they may be celebrating the families of the earth, saying, ascribing, telling, declaring, singing? Have you ever thought that the Aspens may not just do that, just to do that? There's no mating ritual going on there. They're just birds, you might think. Well, they're singing to mate. You know, they're attracting one another. But trees just, man, let the trees Exult, let the, or let, let the trees sing for joy, let the field exult, let the sea roar before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This psalm, and considering what we've considered this morning, should bring a whole new meaning to look at the birds. Jesus in Matthew 6, he's encouraging them not to be anxious about what they're going to wear or what they're going to eat. Look at the birds. I provide for them. Look at the lily. I clothe him in splendor. This should add a whole new meaning to look at the birds and consider the lily. A whole new meaning where you're looking at him going, wait a second. Creation is caught up in this interplay between God and his people. Creation is cheering for his people. Man, I thought about this idea. Consider, just consider this for a moment with me in light of this psalm, in light of where we're going this morning, in light of the fact that we are organically connected to creation, that when you walk out of your house on a Sunday morning, let's just consider this morning, and you walked out to get in your minivan. Most of you. (laughs) Right? And, you know, the kids are trailing behind, or you're yelling, get your butt in the minivan. You know, you're good. Where's little Johnny? Why is he always last? As you load up and get in the minivan, that those trees in your yard, that those aspens, I wish we had aspens here, but those oaks, those red oaks, those October glory maples, that they are cheering for you, saying, go worship, that those birds are singing, and they're not singing to mate, they're singing, they're saying, he is worthy. He's worthy to worship and enjoy this Sunday morning, the Sunday before Christmas. Go do it, families of the people. We're connected. We're connected. I'm celebrating your worship. Man, what a beautiful notion. That'll change the way you listen to the birds. Play that audio for me, if you would. This was, let me... Let me set it up first. This is in New Zealand. You know, Brent Money told me, he said, man, I like when you go on trips because you always have some sort of connection after you come back from a trip. <laughs> I hope I have some connections other times too, but, it, it, you know, well, hopefully I, <laughs> I enjoy these sort of thoughts because you have a chance to just think and just process some things. But every morning about 4.30 in the morning, it gets really light there early. Or it gets light there early and stays light really late because you're close to Antarctica. It's like a a southern version of Alaska, you know, that's light for a big part of the day. So the sun comes up, starts coming up about 4.30, and these birds start singing. And it is an alarm clock, whether you like it or not. I mean, 4.30 in the morning, this was, Christy just stuck the phone out the window of the bathroom into a parking lot. Okay, we're not in a bird aviary or something, (laughs) sanctuary. This is a parking lot, so hit that thing. That's good. That's good. Families of the earth should hear with a different, different set of ears. Sure, birds sing to each other to mate. <laughs> That's a given. 
But man, could you consider that they're celebrating and singing for you as you worship the Lord? Could you consider that this creation pines, pines for you as you worship and pines for Christ's return? That's the third observation. The last place I'll have you turn is Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of men. This personification of creation should not be unfamiliar to us this morning. It's what we've considered all morning, that it almost has a life of its own. And it's waiting with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of men. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation, it seems, Paul is teaching here that creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of men or the sons of God. Think about creation cheering for the hucks as they're in the far corners of the world. Think about creation cheering for the Thorntons as they're in the far corners of the world, sowing seed in the plots of soil. Creation is eagerly awaiting and cheering for you while you share Christ with those around you who don't know him. Can you consider that creation, according to what it says here that I believe is true, the creation pines for the revelation of the sons of men or sons of God, and the creation also groans together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation was subjected to futility, paid a terrible price for Adam's sin, and was introduced with this thing called decay or introduced to something called decay. But creation will be set free and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Man, good news for us means good news for creation. The way this passage lines up, it tells us that creation is is going to be saved with us, but it's at the back of the line. Once all the sons of God have been revealed, creation will be redeemed and renewed with us. So here's the third thought, and this connects to our Advent season. Creation waits with eager longing, and creation groans for Christ's return. So should we. Awaiting, groaning together. In fact, the next verse says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Man, that's Advent anticipation. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful, so thankful for this view that's outside of ourselves. This view of creation is being tainted and stained and cursed because of Adam's sin but being redeemed through Christ's work. Lord, I'm thankful for this view of our connection to creation where the fields are exulting as we ascribe and tell and declare and sing. Lord, I'm thankful for this idea that the field that surrounds this building right now exults as we continue here in a few minutes in supper and song that the trees sing for joy and clap their hands for the families of your people. God, I'm thankful for this organic connection 
And we together, we together enjoy this morning that we'll have a corporate salvation in Christ. We groan along with creation this morning, eagerly awaiting Christ's return. We're thankful in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to distribute the elements here in a moment, but I have these thoughts for you before we do. We're about to enjoy some reordered molecules. If there's ever a case for really having real, or for having real wine in the Lord's Supper, this would be made this morning, that we're going to have some really lame grape juice that's not really good wine. And we may make that case eventually, and there is a case for it, honestly. We're also going to enjoy some ordered and structured grain and barley. Now, it's going to be a little chunk of tortilla or something. Man, I really wish that we had some really freshly baked bread and some really good wine to celebrate what Christ has done for us this morning. We together can at least enjoy what these represent and what they mean. We don't have to have those things to enjoy that he spoke into the chaos of our sinful lives. He spoke into the hopeless storm of our slavery to sin and self and said, peace be still. That's what he does, and that's what he did. His words and his work brought order, meaning, and hope. And we enjoy this every single week as we take and eat and take and drink. Let's distribute the elements. We'll celebrate... uh, some reordered molecules, not really good ones, but we'll imagine they're really good because of what they mean and what they represent. And we'll enjoy them and celebrate them as a reordered people. Because he didn't just bring order to the molecules, he brought order to a people, brought peace like crystal glass sea to a people. That's what his word and his work did. Let's enjoy that together and take and eat. take and drink. Let's pray. God, what a delightful time we've had together gathering, enjoying Christ, enjoying the incarnation, anticipating, groaning together, uh, awaiting his return. Lord, I pray that this week, as we celebrate the birth, that we too can connect to creation and consider a creation that longs and awaits and groans waiting for Christ's return, that we can go do that with creation. Uh, We're thankful, Lord, uh, for your work in our lives, saying peace, be still. We love you in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a wonderful week.